welcome to the podcast. We've got fresh content from some of the brightest minds in the Bitcoin, blockchain, and crypto space. With feeds on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram that make it so incredibly easy to keep to the pulse of what's happening. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and even hit the share button to send to someone you know who would love to know about this totally free podcast. Huge thanks to our main sponsor, UnoCoin, who are not only India's leading crypto assets blockchain company, but also the reason why this podcast is available to you completely free of charge. With that said, let's jump into one of the Blockchain Impact Conference talks that took place in Toronto, Canada on December 8th, 2017. Enjoy. It seems like they've graduated a couple of levels since the beginning. So, I mean, congratulations to uh, to the team at FinTech Canada because this is really incredible to see how much it's grown. Um, so a little bit of background on me. Sunny did a good job kind of introducing me. My name is Matthew Spoke. Uh, I'm the founder of a company called Nuco. More recently, the founder of a network uh, called Aeon. I'll tell you a little bit about that, but kind of more broadly, I want to talk about uh, what we consider to be kind of the third generation of where blockchains are going, considering how many networks are in existence today, and some of the problems that have emerged as a result of all these kind of fragmented networks getting developed and different you know, value chains getting built in different parts of the world. Uh, so what we're doing about that. So some context on our company, we're Toronto-based. Um, I, I mean, I just walked over from the office, so we're pretty close. Uh, we're about 30 people. Uh, we've been doing this for coming up on two years before which I started a blockchain team at Deloitte back in 2014. Um, and then we started working on the enterprise market, figuring out what was it about decentralized ledgers that was interesting or how could it possibly impact um, you know, the enterprise markets from financial services to healthcare to other markets uh, and why were so many companies really focusing on this technology as potentially a way for them to modernize their back office infrastructures. So that was kind of the original view and perspective the company started off with. Eventually we realized that there was kind of a new set of problems emerging in the industry that had to do with the fact that there were public networks getting built, private networks getting built, and yet none of these networks were really designed to interconnect with each other and communicate. So that's when we launched our most recent project called Aeon, but I'll jump into that in a second. First I want to give you just a little bit of context on what we set out to do as a company. So. Uh, <laughs> So some quick context on, on our perspective on the market when we started was that there was a lot of attention going into the enterprise market. When I started the blockchain team at Deloitte, I mean, back then it was a Bitcoin team at Deloitte uh, in like early 2014, uh, nobody had really talked about anything in the blockchain space other than Bitcoin. I mean, altcoins were around, of course, but they weren't really catching anybody's attention in the mainstream, uh, but Bitcoin was. And yet there was still kind of a lack of understanding of how the technology fundamentally worked. Uh, what it might mean to non-financial services institutions as a non-payment technology. And then obviously the emergence of Ethereum kind of changed certain things. People started to imagine different possible outcomes of why we use decentralized ledgers for different applications in different industries. But there was still kind of this massive gap between what is the reality of an enterprise, the reality of a large institution, and what's the design of these kind of open source public networks. So we started building kind of a set of features and tools that would essentially kind of help bridge this gap for lack of a better analogy. Uh, what were the integration requirements for us to be able to plug this into legacy technologies? Uh, what were the performance requirements of like, let's say a large financial institution versus what a Bitcoin type technology could process? Um, and eventually we started realizing that there was this new layer of infrastructure that seemed to be missing around interoperability. Not only interoperability from legacy into modern, but also interoperability between these modern systems, between different blockchains, whether private or public, 
you know, how would we eventually kind of stitch all these things together rather than see them as isolated systems? Because, you know, a lot of people have talked about blockchains as being some sort of evolution to the modern internet. But the reality is that we view and operate and, you know, use the internet as kind of a single cohesive network. Although there are kind of barriers and walls every once in a while when you try to go in and out of China as a good example, but it still is kind of one giant network. And if you look at the blockchain ecosystem today, that's not the case at all. I mean, we've got maybe 50% of the market cap of our, of our industry that sits in one network, and 50% of the market cap that sits in 150 other networks. And then beyond those public networks, we've got thousands and thousands of other private networks that are getting built that have yet to be kind of bridged to each other. So I'm going to walk you through what that looks like in our mind, but again, one of the big focuses we've had as a company comes down to standardization. And standardization has been, we've kind of approached it in two different ways. Uh, about a year and a half ago, we kicked off an initiative that really formalized in early 2017 called the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance. So we're one of the founding members there. We launched that organization with, uh, with the likes of Microsoft, Accenture, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, uh, Intel, and a few others, uh, all focused on how could Ethereum as a framework be adopted in the enterprise market. What would we need to change about this technology to make it really consumable by networks of companies rather than networks of individuals? Uh, more recently, we recently launched something called the Blockchain Interoperability Alliance focused on this intersection, this intersection between public networks and private networks, public networks and other public networks, and what would be that common communication protocol that would allow us to jump back and forth between different networks. So these are, you know, all of this is essentially to say that we're still at a stage in the industry where standards have not emerged. We're not, you know, we're not of the opinion that there will be a single protocol that rules them all. Um, so that means there's going to be a plethora of protocols out there, a plethora of solutions that get built, probably not too dissimilar to the way the database industry works today, different types of databases, different companies that provide databases, yet common interfaces for how I might move from one database to another. In this context, common interfaces for how I might move from one network to another. So that's kind of the, the intent of our, our most recent work with the Blockchain Interoperability Alliance. Uh, which we hope will have kind of more members joining us over the course of the next few years. But for context, I mean, these three companies, uh, ourselves, Icon and Wanchain, uh, they represent uh, South Korea and, and China, respectively. Uh, and, and as a team, I mean, as a collection, we've raised about $100 million to solve this very specific problem of blockchain interoperability. Um, so quick, quickly about us, what we've done, just to give you some context on our enterprise background, we've done work in a whole bunch of different domains. We've done projects in supply chain and healthcare and finance, uh, you know, most recently started a, a project in pharmaceutical tracking uh, in the distribution channels of pharmaceutical drugs. Uh, we've done identity management with government, a whole bunch of use cases that everybody hears about all the time and say, wouldn't this be a really interesting fit for a distributed system? So, you know, we've gone in and tested and experimented with clients. We've learned kind of what works, what doesn't work. Uh, where are the gaps between what currently functions in these networks and what has yet to be invented? Uh, you know, what are the privacy requirements that have not yet been solved so that I could realistically put, you know, private healthcare information into a distributed network of hospitals, for example. Uh, so a lot of that has kind of led us to some of the, the initial realizations of what type of problems have yet to be solved in the industry. I'll give you one example that we worked on over the course of the last year that's still a project that's currently underway. It's a project we worked on with the TMX group, uh, which is the, the owners of the Toronto Stock Exchange. Uh, so in this context, we, we did a, a kind of three, four month project with them on natural gas trading in the commodities market, post-trade settlement of natural gas, essentially looking at that market as a, a network of counterparties. A network of counterparties that includes producers, consumers, buyers, sellers, traders, pipeline operators, regulators, everybody who's involved in this kind of very niche market of trading natural gas. And how do they operate today? They operate on Excel sheets, letters, 
envelopes and the postal service. Uh, and that's why when they run into conflicts today, when there's disagreement on the nature of a deal, on the, on the status of a delivery, it tends to be about 60 to 90 days before they can really identify what went wrong, whose fault was it, uh, if there's a penalty, a penalty to be applied, who should pay it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So what we were able to do is essentially demonstrate to them that in this context, a decentralized system that connects all these parties could essentially take that 60 to 90 day process down to a two minute reconciliation process where instead of having everybody sitting on kind of siloed operating processes and systems and siloed databases, bring everybody into a common transaction database. So everybody's looking at the same deal at the same time with the same characteristics and the same data, and there's no misinterpretation. There's no ability for me to point fingers and say, well, it's actually that guy's fault because the data in this context no longer aligns. It has, no longer has the ability to be, to be challenged or changed. So this is just kind of one example. I mean, the layer that has yet to be built, which is part of our phase two that we're working through right now with the TMX, is how do we take this system that currently lives in isolation from their current production operating systems and how do we plug it in? So there's a layer of interoperability into their, into their legacy, into their old systems that has yet to be solved. There's a lot of work that needs to be done there to make sure that this can become like an efficiency rather than a burden for them. So that they don't have to kind of interface with two different technologies, but we can kind of make it look seamless behind the scenes. So this is you know, a quick, scenario, quick example of, of some of the work that we've been doing. With that in mind, I, I, I just want to touch quickly on the problems that we've solved as an industry between you know, the earliest days of Bitcoin, you know, the emergence of Ethereum, a lot of new technologies getting built with different kind of design principles, but all generally categorized, and, and, and I'd say they've all solved these kind of three fundamental things. And one is, how do we synchronize across siloed databases? How do we align misaligned interest among stakeholders and create kind of a sense of trust where trust did not exist before? And how do we simplify what used to be convoluted processes? Processes that might require layers and layers of paper process, layers and layers of human interaction, and how do we turn these things into automated applications? Um, and, and I think this is kind of where the industry is at today. What we haven't yet solved, though, is kind of the right side of the screen, which is how do we make sure that we can achieve the right amount of scalability to say, well, if we're looking at the blockchain industry as um, a solution to maybe 0.1% of the world's problems, how do we scale it into something that might become a solution for 100% of the world's problems? And I don't mean that in the broader sense of the world's problems. We're not going to solve world hunger on the blockchain. We're not going to solve nuclear war on the blockchain. But I mean, from a you know, in terms of collaboration among counterparties, how do we solve these things that we haven't solved scalability, haven't solved performance, importantly, haven't solved interoperability, and obviously haven't solved privacy to a great extent. I mean, there's, there's technologies like Monero, technologies like Zcash getting developed, but for the most part, these are still kind of science fiction projects that have come with privacy at the expense of performance. So if you want to run a private transaction across Zcash, you'll probably have to wait about 50 times as long as running a transparent uh, uh, transaction on Zcash. So we've figured out privacy, we just haven't figured it out in a way that is really solvable for a large scale of users. Um, so this was kind of the guiding principles that led us to realize that there's still a lot more to be done. There's a lot more uh, engineering and research that still needs to be done. There's a lot more collaboration of projects that still needs to occur. And importantly, what we're seeing and what I, I think will be kind of an obvious trend in 2018 is that what we used to see as two ends of the blockchain spectrum, you know, the enterprise end, and the public end, I think we're going to start seeing a lot more collision. We're going to start to see a lot more applications where public blockchains and enterprise markets start to collide. And see, you know, the CME that uh, that Tony was just talking about, the CME Bitcoin futures market, is probably the first indication of this. Seeing a mainstream institution looking at these public networks in a real way for real value. Whether they get it right the first time, we'll see. Um, but this is just an obvious problem to us. A little bit more illustrative of this 
is the fact that you know we we looked into the blockchain ecosystem today and said, well, what does it look like today? You know, what how many blockchain projects can I really name and articulate? And I you know I, I tried to list a very small number, but essentially there are you know dozens and dozens and dozens, if not hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different blockchain protocols, different networks. Some which you know you may skeptically say are not actually building anything, but they're trading at really high values. Some that have actually proven themselves over the course of seven, eight years, like Bitcoin, uh, and some that are still concepts and twinkles in their founders' eyes, but are being developed in some lab somewhere in the world with a unique design for something. You know, probably if you've been paying attention to the markets this week, you probably noticed IOTA on the rise, right? And IOTA, this completely novel way of doing distributed systems, maybe wrong, maybe right, maybe a niche design for something important in the future. Who knows? But what's obvious to me about this is that, again, we reinforce the fact that we may not land in a future with a single protocol. We may land in the future with a large number of protocols that each solve kind of different parts of the problem that we're all trying to solve. So if this is the state of the industry, and this is a really simplified version of the state of the industry, then kind of our take on what we need to do next is figure out how do we bring all these things together. And this is why we launched Aon. So Aon is a project that we kind of kicked off back in uh, March or April of this year. Um, you know, and, and we've, we've, we've since kind of come a long way. We're doing our, our, our major, our first release in January. Um, our, our big concept is not so much picking winners and losers in the protocol space, but it's really allowing for different protocols to coexist and communicate with each other. And creating like a common generic communication protocol that would sit at the intersection of different blockchains, rather than saying this blockchain is better than that blockchain and vice versa. So with that in mind, we built a system that essentially allows for interoperability among multiple networks, multiple designs, multiple infrastructures, where the purpose being that I want to be able to write applications from a development perspective that I can say, well, if this happens on blockchain number one, then trigger this on blockchain number two after verifying this on blockchain number three. Something like that. That type of like if-then statement that today is a very difficult thing to do. So what can Aon do with that in mind? We've got kind of three primary uh, purposes in our design, and I'll throw them up really quickly. We've got the concept we call federating, scaling, and spoking. Um, and the, the first is how would I, um, in, a, in, a, in an autonomous, decentralized way, move a transaction or a proof of a transaction across multiple blockchains without relying on an inter intermediary to do that. So if we think very simply of the blockchain space today, we're probably mostly familiar with the cryptocurrency side of it. And we say, well, how do I move a Bitcoin transaction into Ethereum? Well, predominantly, we rely on centralized intermediaries or peer-to-peer -peer transactions. Right? We meet up and we, we get together at a coffee shop and you get on local Bitcoin uh, and you, you do a trade or you go through Coinbase or you go through Kraken or OMEX or any number of other exchanges. But the concept of being able to prove on the Ethereum network that a transaction has occurred on the Bitcoin network and vice versa doesn't exist anymore. And I think this is going to become the future of how we decentralize the intersection of our decentralized systems. Because the irony of our industry is that we've centralized the intersection of every one of these systems. We've centralized the point of intersection, which is for the predominantly the exchanges. So every one of these exchanges, and now you know, on, a, on an average basis, I'll give you some like really interesting stats to chew over. You, you look at exchanges like Bithum, which is the third largest exchange in the world operating in South Korea, does about two to three billion dollars in transaction volume a day. They're making $6 million in net revenue on a daily basis. And we, and we started this by saying, you know, centralized financial institutions were problematic. And we're creating these monolithic financial institutions that are growing at like an astronomical pace because we, we need them. Because the technology doesn't yet exist for us to move back and forth between networks without them. 
So if we can start federating transactions, that means I can prove to you that I've made an Ethereum transaction at the same time that you prove to me that you're making a Bitcoin transaction, and therefore we don't need an exchange to sit in the middle of this. So we can just do these things kind of on a very autonomous and frequent basis. The concept of scaling is this idea that if you follow the Ethereum market this week, you probably, I don't know, anybody, is anybody an active owner of a crypto kitty? Do we have any cat lovers in the room? I hope you didn't pay $100,000 for your crypto kitty, but we have one crypto kitty owner in the room. If you've been paying attention to the Ethereum network today, 20 to 30% of its volume of transactions is being absorbed by a digital cat system. A digital cat system where you can breed cats and, and design cats and create you know, unique cat DNA. This is you know, the killer app that we've all been waiting for. The future is here. We're building crypto kitties. The challenge is that now every other application that's trying to run on the Ethereum blockchain today is being held back. And the performance of the network has been like damaged for the for essentially the entire week, if not two weeks at this point, because of this one single and simple application. So can we scale applications onto multiple blockchains? Can I create a logical application that can run part of its performance on different networks rather than all on the same network? So that's kind of the idea of scaling. And then finally, this idea of creating spokes in a hub and spoke model is this, is this, this idea that if I want to create a dedicated network for a dedicated purpose in a specific industry or a specific geography, can I kind of spin these out as new networks the same way that I would kind of create a new database? Create a new network, you know, optimize its performance, optimize who its participants are, how they achieve consensus, and, and allow that network to plug back into this ecosystem of other networks. So, you know, simply, that looks something like this, but on a slightly broader scale. And I, I threw a couple of examples in here to show you like different protocols that might interact with each other. You know, we come from the enterprise market, so we obviously pay attention very closely to technologies like Corda, which is a pretty unique take on how to build decentralized systems. Uh, Hyperledger, which is being built by IBM. Many of us have kind of second thoughts about them, but at the same time, they're gaining adoption at a pace that you can't ignore anymore. Right? Ethereum, obviously, and dozens and dozens of other protocols that may need to coexist. I mean, it's not too, um, it's not too difficult to imagine an application in the future where I have a medical file being managed on a network of hospitals built on a hyperledger backbone, and then I have an insurance policy managed on a decentralized smart contract on Ethereum, and then I have payments being made to me by some sort of Bank of Canada network uh, powered by Corda. And now I wanna build an application that says, well, if I have a medical procedure, I want an automatic verification of my insurance policy, and if covered, I want an automatic payment made into my bank account. But those three things might exist on three different networks. So can we create a system where messages can be sent and received instantaneously and back and forth between blockchains? So this is kind of a big purpose of our, of our design uh, is this concept of what looks like a tree diagram here, but in reality, you can start routing networks through blockchains and using blockchains as decentralized intermediaries between other blockchains. But making sure that the way you design that is efficient and performance so that you don't create new bottlenecks in the system. Um, so finally, a little bit about us as a company, just so that, you know, because sometimes people get confused as to what we do and how we do it. Uh, we walk around talking about two different brands, Nuco and Aon. Uh, essentially, we're building um, uh, the Aon Foundation, which is managing kind of the, the open source decentralized protocol that will run kind of the public ecosystem of the Aon protocol. Uh, it, you know, this is a market that we've been creating for a couple of months now. Uh, and then we have kind of an enterprise offering that we're continuing to push the market where we're going to package this technology for consumption by large institutions. We, you know, a few of which I talked about already, uh, companies like the TMX, uh, we work with all five of the big Canadian banks. Uh, we work in 
and with governments both in Ontario and British Columbia. We have a few manufacturing clients in the US. Uh, so we're going to continue to push these enterprises to not only think about how do you optimize and create efficiencies on private networks, but how do you eventually connect those private networks to the public networks that we all think are going to change the world. And how do we make sure that if they, if they do that effectively, they can kind of solidify their roles in their markets, in their industries, and not be as concerned about disintermediation and you know, getting forgotten as technology matures and evolves. So this is, this is what we're up to. I mean, that's all I wanted to talk to you about today. Uh, I'm up on my time, but if you feel like getting in touch with us, I mean, we're in town. Uh, we're a very open and wet, uh, welcoming team, so feel free to reach out. Um, yeah, that's all I got. I mean, if anybody has any questions, I'm happy to take part too. Thank you. Yeah. You mentioned uh, some of the staff uh, services already being uh, deployed on the database. Do you have anyone that's already been implemented fully running with the customers? Is there any domain of supply chain or core pharmaceuticals or healthcare or yeah, so so yes and no. I mean yes in the sense that we've done a lot of we've done a lot of projects with different clients. No in the sense that none of them are being actively used in production. Um, I'd say probably the, the closest one that we'll likely see like real use in a production environment uh, sometime in the first half of 2018 is one a pharmaceutical distribution channel system for the tracking of uh, distribution of opioid patches. Uh, and two, uh, the natural gas settlement system that we've been developing. So, uh, second question. Yeah. Uh, this uh, delay or this uh, ongoing activity, uh, is it because of the technology limitation or is it because of the development and I think it's it's a little bit of both. I mean, the one thing we realized when we launched the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance, and what's so unique about that organization is that, uh, you know, and you see it in the makeup of the board of directors, it's a group of startups working with a group of Fortune 500 companies, uh, and the Fortune 500 companies asking us for certain things, and us saying, well, we haven't yet built that, you know, and privacy is a big feature that tends to be missing in a lot of these systems if you're talking about sensitive information. Uh, performance obviously isn't there necessarily, depending on what the use case is. So I think there's still a, a massive gap in the, the, the requirements of the technology. But I also, you know, I, we, we never went into this anticipating that our large institutions would act quickly or that our governments would act quickly. I mean, this is something that I think will take them a long time to, a long time to, to figure out. Um, it's helpful that, you know, unlike other tech, technology paradigms, it's helpful that this also has a version of its technology operating outside the bounds of, of the mainstream institutions, and it's making them pay attention. The cryptocurrency market, the Bitcoin market, these are markets that are making them watch. And if they're not paying attention, they, they know very soon that it might start impacting them. And I think if you know if we were operating kind of distributed systems in isolation and we didn't have this concept of Bitcoin, it'd probably be a very different, uh, there would be less urgency among these, these large institutions. But there are a couple of clients. I mean, what's interesting to me about the Chicago Mercantile Exchange is a simple example of showing this progression, is the Chicago Mercantile Exchange six months ago had like really, really big news that they were built, they had built and launched a production gold trading system with physical gold reserves backing a blockchain system for like you know uh, to tokenized trading of gold balances, uh, and that was probably one of the largest announcements of like a mainstream institution doing anything real on a blockchain. And it was the Royal Mint in the UK and the CME in Chicago. Not only not not six months later, they're now talking about Bitcoin and how why Bitcoin is kind of the next market they want to go into. So they're already starting to make this progression from like private to public. Our next logical question for them is, can I eventually buy Bitcoin with gold? Will you ever enable that bridge to get built? Um, because I, I think kind of the broader perspective for, especially asset exchanges, we deal with the Toronto Stock Exchange a lot, but the CME is a, not a, you know, a, a friendly uh, company to us as well. 
Um, I think the big topic that people often miss is when we talk about disintermediation with blockchains, we often think about disintermediating companies, or I think in our financial systems, the obvious intermediary is currency. Is to say, well, why do we trade in dollars if we can trade from asset to asset extremely liquidly, right? So if I could have perfect liquidity in gold, then I don't need dollars to trade from gold to silver because both of these things now have liquidity because I can create these tokenized systems that trade freely and all of a sudden the concept of currency becomes a lot less relevant because we've created currency as a liquid medium of exchange, but now we're creating liquidity in other asset markets. Uh, and, and I think that's gonna be a really, really big realization. And there's many, like there's a huge industry built around simply settlement through currency. Uh, and if that starts to get challenged, then you know the whole, the whole system gets redesigned essentially. Yeah, thank you. All right, any other questions? Oh, yeah. Now, you mentioned the second thought on hyperledger. Can you expand a bit on that? Uh, well, I, I mean, hyperledger, in, in fairness to IBM, I think has, has made a significant amount of progress in the last six months. Um, and, and I say in fairness to IBM, the Linux Foundation would disagree that it's an IBM project, but the market kind of views it that way. Uh, the challenge is, and this is my cynical perspective, is that IBM has a great motto to say we'd love for everything to be decentralized so long as you build it on IBM servers. And that's the model that I think is kind of contrary to what we're trying to accomplish. Uh, the, the fact of the matter is though in the enterprise market, IBM has, has a reach that nobody else has because they already are inside of all of these institutions in a very real way. So for them to kind of like upsell on their blockchain offering, it's, it's pretty difficult for, for, for small organizations to kind of directly compete with that. I think where they're missing the boat is that they've pigeonholed themselves into a, a view of the world that only includes private networks and they see no relevance to the public systems. And I think eventually that's going to be the, that's going to be the last kind of the nail in the coffin, because the companies that are not looking beyond private systems are going to miss the miss the, the opportunity to actually make meaningful change towards public networks, which I think is going to happen in the next couple of years. It's available for a private system. Yes, I'm from IBM Hyperledger. There you go. We got somebody from IBM Hyperledger. Um, and and I mean that all, all that said, we also have clients. What what became obvious to us is. Um, that we were doing projects with clients that were also doing projects with IBM Hyperledger. I mean, the TMX is a good example. They're not, they, they did a Hyperledger project with Accenture on a part of their business, and they did a project with us on like an enterprise Ethereum implementation. And you know, they were the first client to ask us, what if we ever wanted to build connections between these two things, right? And we didn't have an answer, a good answer for that back then. And a lot of, you know, there's a lot of talk of interoperability inside single systems. So uh, interoperability across Hyperledger fabric networks, that makes sense, there's, there's, and that's kind of designed and functional. EOS is a good example of the public blockchain world where they've figured out how you can launch many, many different versions of the EOS chain and have them interoperate with each other. But interoperability, again, like across heterogeneous networks is, is a completely different problem. So that's where we're pretty interested in solving that. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share with a friend you think would appreciate the send. Up next, more talks from past conferences. Thanks for listening.